We've been studying the book of Habakkuk, which consists of a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk complains about the society in which he lives. The people of God supposedly are marked by violence and injustice. He wants to know why God allows this. And God responds by telling him that he is raising up the Babylonians, implying that they will be instruments of his judgment. Habakkuk finds this answer unsatisfactory, as the pagan Babylonians are worse than the people of Judah. They are a cruel people, a proud people. Habakkuk's second complaint, though, is is couched in the reality of God's character. In humility, Habakkuk states that he will wait for God's answer. It is in God's second answer that we hear these words, the righteous will live by his faith. Just to review a bit, to answer the question, what is faith? I would say it is the third most important question one can ask. The first being, who is God? What is his nature? What is his relationship to the universe? What is his relationship to humanity? The second most important question is, what is a human being? Where did humanity come from? What is our purpose? What is our relationship to the universe? What is our relationship to God? This leads to the third most important question, that is, what is faith? I would suggest to you it is a means of relationship between God and man, which God has ordained. So what is faith exactly? It is perceiving and believing the truth and living as though it were the truth. How are we to have faith? As we have seen with all our heart, that is the will, the source of our thoughts, words, and actions, with all our soul, the seat of our emotions, with all our mind, this is the intellect, with all our strength, this is where all these meet the external world. In each of these, we are to have faith. With all our heart, we are to be humble. With all our soul, we are to trust. With all our mind, we are to receive and believe the truth. With all our strength, we are to act on the truth. But then this brings up another question is, what is truth? The truth is that God exists. The answer to the question, what is truth, is, and it can only be answered by the existence of God and who he is. Therefore, truth is that which is in relationship to the God who exists. But I think there's an unspoken assumption here, and that is that truth is seen primarily, if not exclusively, as an intellectual matter. And a part of the reason for this, or for thinking this way, is because of necessity, the truth must be communicated by words, by language. But the truth cannot be described by words only or with words only, because the truth is not information only. To perceive the truth must involve the whole person. And beginning to look at chapter 3, I want us to consider the place of emotions in perceiving and believing the truth. We should keep in mind that words are used to express what Habakkuk is feeling and experiencing. And yet at the same time, words are inadequate to do this completely. If you wish, something gets lost in translation. But words are all we have. But it should not diminish the place of emotions in this book. Chapter 3 is a prayer in the form of a psalm. It starts out with these words, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, 
on shigayanon, or shigayanoth, it's a plural. We should take note of the following. This comes immediately after the, after the final woe, the fifth woe, which was about the folly of idolatry. And it comes after the admonition to stand in silence before the Lord. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. You will notice something else, because we dealt with this earlier. Is Habakkuk a prophet? Well, he refers to himself as a prophet. He's not only a believer, a follower, but he is a spokesman for God. Shigayanoth is the plural of Shigayan, which is found only one other place in the Old Testament. It is in the title of Psalm 7, a Shigayan of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. It means literally to reel or to stagger like a drunken person. In both this chapter and in Psalm 7, we have an impassioned appeal and rapid change of emotions. It can be described as having been composed and written under strong emotional pressure. If you think about it, we look back at what we've seen thus far in Habakkuk, we have seen a battle, we've witnessed a battle of conflicting emotions. Starts out with indignation at the beginning of chapter two. I'm sorry, chapter one, verses two through four. Horror at God's threatened punishment from the Babylonians. Doubts as to God's justice and wisdom. Patience and long suffering at the beginning of chapter two. He will wait for God's answer. And joy at the promised salvation. Well, this battle, if you wish, this, these conflicting emotions continues in a big way in chapter three. We have fear at God's majesty. We have adoration of God's glory. We have joy of salvation, but also deep disappointment at the delay of God's help. There's jubilant confidence. We have, in essence, a violent battle of emotions. It is like being out in the middle of the ocean and the big waves are surging, threatening to overthrow him until at the end he finds peace, contentment, and joy in God. But we should not be surprised at the emotional uh, roller coaster that we find in this book. Our heritage is one of extreme emotions. Moses broke the tablets that God had given to him with the Ten Commandments when he saw the wickedness of the people of Israel. David danced with joy before the Lord as the ark came into Jerusalem. His wife thought he overdid it. God did not. And then in Jesus, we see him cleansing the temple. We hear him weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, weeping over Jerusalem, weeping in the garden of Gethsemane. Let me read to you from Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So let me ask you, when it comes to the matter of perceiving and believing the truth, should not our emotions be involved? 
If faith is, in fact, the means of a relationship between God and men, which he has ordained, should not our emotions be involved? Emotions are a necessary part of our relationships. Try to imagine any type of relationship, parent-child, husband-wife, friend-to-friend. Try to imagine those relationships without any emotion. Without any emotion in these relationships, we could well conclude that the relationship exists only in a technical sense. And yet I find it intriguing uh, that fictional characters like Spock and the whole Vulcan planet are held up as something to be emulated to have no emotions. I would disagree. Try to imagine a relationship that is only intellectual. And perhaps this is how we think of our relationship with God. He has spoken to us in scripture, we read it, we respond in prayer, and that's that. Well, such a relationship is sorely inadequate. Relationships require emotions. And as relationships develop and grow, different emotions come into play. Think of a newborn child, a newborn infant in the first few months of life. Even though he or she cannot speak, he or she feels security in his mother's arms and other arms as well. As the child grows, the relationship is still mother-child, but different emotions come into play. So it is with God our Father. Different emotions come into play. Witness Habakkuk. Reread this book when you have a chance. Where or when do these emotions come into play? I would say in every aspect of life, but primarily in prayer. First, in private prayer, I think this is where the major battles take place. Secondly, in family prayer, battles in which the family has in common and they join together and pray. Thirdly, public prayer, or prayer in public worship. Battles which individuals in the congregation have faced during the week oftentimes are brought out at this point. But... I would argue that oftentimes public prayer, prayer and worship, is a lot calmer than what we find in private prayer. Um, But emotions do play a significant role in our relationship with God, and we see this in Habakkuk. We hear it in the word shigayanoth, reelings and staggerings. I don't know if you've ever heard someone say this, but some thinking that they're saying a good thing or like... Ever since I became a Christian, I've never been sad. I am never sad. And while they might think this to be a good thing, I would say, well, that's really too bad. That's rather sad. It means that you've never truly been happy. And by the way, how can the Spirit of God be a comforter to you if, in fact, you've never been sad? How can you grow without resistance, without difficulty? I would say you're not really acting like a human being. The question then may come back, well, was there sorrow, was there sadness in the Garden of Eden? Will there be sorrow or sadness in heaven? And I would say no, but you're not in the Garden of Eden, and you're not in heaven. The work of redemption has started in our lives here in a fallen world. We don't live in a perfect world. We are not perfect. Those around us are not perfect. 
emotions, even great sorrow, as we hear of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, are a part of who we are. They should not be pushed aside, unless they in fact come from a sinful attitude. Paul told the Ephesians, in your anger, do not sin. He doesn't say never be angry. He says, when you are angry, do not sin. The eternal state is when these negative emotions will be swept aside. We are told that God will wipe away our tears. Some may think, well, don't bother, I've never cried. How sad. Here in Habakkuk chapter 3, we have private prayer. This is where the major battle takes place. Prayer is a dialogue, person to person. And the implications are really quite astounding. It is real communication, person to person, from us to God. Words are used, and yet words may be inadequate. Think of what can be communicated between human beings with a look, a glance, a touch, a chuckle, perhaps even silence. God is personal. If we do not see God as a person, then prayer, in fact, is useless. It's not part of a dialogue. It's sort of a monologue. God is acting and working in the universe. We read of him raising up the Babylonians, and then he pronounces woes on them. We saw it last Sunday. In prayer, there must be a knowledge of God, starting with the basic reality that God is there. In Hebrews 11.6, we read, And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Our prayers, the reality of prayer, the recognition that God is at work in the world. I think many people would say that God in the past has been active and did things in the world, but they're not so sure that he's working now. I think this may be one of the issues with Habakkuk, and the Lord willing, we will see it next Sunday. Uh, he knows that God did amazing things in the past, but what's going on right now? Just a side note. If we mindlessly repeat the same prayers, then we really fail to recognize the diversity of our situations, that God is acting in different ways at each moment in the world. Then someone might say, well, aren't we always supposed to give thanks, confess our sins, and ask the things that we would uh, need or those, the needs in the lives of others? Isn't that the same thing as just repeating the same prayers? And if, if we're not careful, yes, it can be. But the fact is we are always to thank God because he is always providing what is necessary for us. We are always to confess our sins because we always sin and he always forgives. We are always to bring our con concerns and needs to him because he is always watching out for us. He will always do what is best for us. But each situation is new and unique. Each moment, each day. The hymn that we sang, day by day, each day is different. With this in mind, let's look at Habak the beginning of Habakkuk's prayer. And how does he begin? In verse number two. Lord, 
Let me remind you of what you already know. In the Old Testament, whenever the name of God was used, either Jehovah or Yahweh, Lord was written in its place, the name of God being considered so sacred as to not be used. In English translations, it's in all caps. When you see Lord in all caps, first of all, that will only be in the Old Testament, and it is in the place of the name of God. The name of God means I am that I am, or I am who I am. This is the basis of truth. God exists. He is unchanged and unchanging. In spite of everything in Habakkuk's situation, wicked people of Judah, the wickedness of Babylon, God remains unchanged. He is the known yet unknown. God has condescended to speak to us, to reveal something of himself, and he certainly did with Habakkuk. He who is infinite speaks to us who are quite finite. And our knowledge of him is incomplete, but we can know something of him. Habakkuk did, and he spoke to him. And God spoke to him. So verse number two, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. In my opinion, the NIV here fails to convey what I think is intended. That is, it's a conversation. To hear of one's fame does not require dialogue. Other translations have words like speech or report. That is, Habakkuk heard what God said to him. Okay? God, or Habakkuk heard what God said he is going to do to Babylon and to Judah. And his reaction is awe. The King James says, I was afraid. The ESV says, I fear. What is intended is fear mixed with admiration and reverence. Habakkuk sees perhaps better than we do, who God is. And what is, what is this all about? What is it that he has heard? Your deeds. I'm in awe of your deeds, O Lord. This is what God is going to do. And then the prayer request, or the prayer continues with three requests. If you look at verse number, still in verse number two, Renew them in our day, and in our time make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Again, other translations have revived them in our day. Revive your deeds. Do what you're going to do in our day. Bring to life and reality the things that you said. In our time, make them known. Habakkuk, as difficult as it will be, wants to see this come to pass. Soon. Make this happen. And then thirdly, he says, in wrath, remember mercy. This could explain in part why Habakkuk prays that judgment would come soon. He wants God, what God said would happen to happen soon to be made known. Based on God's character, two aspects here, wrath and mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. We may struggle with the idea of God being angry, or the wrath of God, in part because of the bad examples of human anger, which usually, or I don't know if I should say usually, but often is badly motivated, badly acted out, even when it comes from a good place. We sort of lose control. Um, and so when we think of God being angry, we think of 
oh, when I'm angry, this is what I do, this is what I'm feeling. And why would God be like that? Listen to some, some examples of the language of anger. Blind rage, out of control, beside oneself. I lost it. I blew up. As we saw earlier, uh, anger is not necessarily wrong. Paul tells the Ephesians, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Paul doesn't say anger is out. You're a Christian. You can no longer get angry. No, but we are not to sin. In James chapter 1, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. He doesn't say you can never get angry. But do these apply to God as well? Does he abide by the same constraints, or does he violate his own rules? He does not. God, in fact, is slow to anger. There are passages that speak of his anger being quickly kindled. Um, Psalm 2, verse 12, Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. This would seem to contradict other passages. I would argue it does not. I think we need to accept that we do not fully understand God. But let me suggest some things for you to think about with regard to the anger or the wrath of God. First of all, wrath is not an attribute of God. God is not angry by nature. He is not eagerly looking for a place to vent his anger. God is not in a bad mood. He is not influenced by hormones. He doesn't have sleepless nights. He's not hungry. He didn't have a bad childhood. These things that we attribute, you know, why people get angry the way that they do. God's not like that. God's wrath is not an attribute. We sang at the beginning of our worship today, holy, holy, holy. We could not sing angry, angry, angry because anger is not God's nature. I would argue that if there was no evil, God would not be angry. Let me ask you, how would you want God to respond to evil in, a wor- in the world that's supposed to be morally perfect? We know that the world is not morally perfect. We know that it's fallen. And yet, when evil things happen, do we, in fact, not want God to respond? Yes, we do. And sometimes we get angry because we think he has not responded soon enough or in the way that we think he should respond. Evil is that which is contrary to God's nature, and God is holy. We want God to make things right, and when things are not the way they should be, then God, yes, it is contrary to his holiness and his nature, and he, in fact, is angered. His holiness is who he is in his essence. He would be holy even if the world was without sin. But if the world was without sin, he would not be angry. It is his response to evil in his creation. God's wrath is against anything which does not conform to his character. 
That sounds rather conceited. And I would say in anyone else it would be. But how do we know what is good? How do we know what is wrong, what is evil? Well, there are several possibilities. The first two, by the way, are wrong. The third one is correct. The first is that good and evil really exist, um, and there's this standard outside of reality to which God himself is subject. So that God must be judged by the same standards as we are. The second possibility is that good and evil are only names for what God decides they are. So it's totally arbitrary that God somehow got to make up the rules and he decided what was good and what was bad. But the biblical position is that God's character determines, it defines what is good and what is evil. Anything that does not conform to his nature, anything that is opposed to his nature, is in fact evil. His character does not change. He remains holy. We who are fallen, we are sinful, we sin when we try to become our own gods, when we do not conform to God's nature. In Romans 1.18, we read, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. That is, things that are not like his character. It's interesting, as human beings, we long for our choices to have significance. We want meaning. Um, but we want to do away with the foundation of God's judgment. It is God who determines what is right and what is wrong. Why are we significant? I would suggest because of God's judgment of us. We want our choices to have significance, and they do. This is seen, the judgment of God. God's attitude toward me is affected whether or not I do as he says, whether or not I choose to be like him in my nature. God's personal reaction to my sin is anger. Paul told the Ephesians, we are by nature, when we're born into this world, children of wrath. Someone might say, well, is there a difference, is there a connection between God's anger and his love? It almost seems like he's bipolar. You know, at the one moment he's angry, the other moment he's saying that he loves us. No. See, love is God's character. It's not a reaction to who we are or what we do. He is loving. It's an attribute. He becomes angry. His wrath is revealed when we do not do as he calls us to do. In Lamentations 3, we read, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In the rest of chapter 3, Habakkuk rehearses from history examples of both God's wrath and his mercy shown toward his people. If you would want to encapsulate chapter 3 into one word, it would be the word deliverance. Follow along, if you would, as I read, beginning in verse number 3. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. 
Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise, rays flashed from his hand, where his power was hidden. Plague went before him, pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled, the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Kushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow, you called for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by, the deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the, hand of, of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. Selah. With his own spear, you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. You might say, but Damon, you're not finished. You need to keep going to the good part, the part that we're going on a journey with with Habakkuk to reach that point. Habakkuk's not there yet. He is in battle in his prayer, trying to understand what God is doing. Looking at, at what God has done in the past, I think what we find in chapter 3 is almost a supernatural event in which God, in a split second, allows Habakkuk to see the history of Israel and the history of humanity at that time. It's not sequential. We'll see that next Sunday. It's not chronological. But in a split second, he sees what God has done. And yet there's still a battle, the battle of his emotions as he tries to understand what God is doing. What he witnesses is violence and deliverance, wrath, and mercy. In the accomplishing of redemption, of deliverance, there is much violence. We struggle with that. Habakkuk struggled with that. But in the end, he came at the end of the book to see that God, in fact, is righteous and one in whom we are to put our faith and our trust. You'll notice that three times in this chapter we see the word Selah. We don't see it anywhere outside the book of Psalms. We're not sure what it means, but there is a theory that in fact it is what we do in our public singing 
when Tom plays an interlude between the next to the last and the last verse. It's a time for the congregation to be silent. And if you go back and read this prayer one more time, what else, what else can Habakkuk do at that moment but be silent? In the battle of emotions, God shows him what he has done in the past. And he's already told him what he's going to do in the future. Habakkuk can just be silent. You'll notice, by the way, at the end of the book that this is, in fact, a song. It's for the director of music. Um, on stringed instruments. This is something to be sung. Not one of those chipper songs, is it? But I think it is true to the reality of prayer. The struggle, the emotions that are involved. But ultimately they culminate in the reality. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we are fallen. Not only are we finite, but we are broken. Somehow we imagine that we can put ourselves together. Simply a matter of information. Oftentimes we come to Scripture, we embrace your, your word as information, as truth. And try to set aside those emotions that seem quite unruly that we might even imagine seem unchristian. But here in your prophet Habakkuk, we see a man struggling in prayer, a man in dialogue with you. You answer him. You show him who you are. We, are, we find ourselves in the midst of a plague, a pandemic. And our emotions are all over the place. May we struggle in prayer. You hear us. You're not, you're not gonna leave us because we get angry or because we lose heart, you remain faithful. Habakkuk faced a different kind of plague, wickedness among his own people, and yet coming destruction at the hand of the Babylonians. But he struggled in prayer. May we follow his example. May we stop having such a sanitized view of our faith. May we recognize that sometimes it gets messy. But you're always there. And you always will be. Thank you for this day, your day, a day where we can worship you in spirit and in truth. May your spirit and your grace be with us in the coming days. May we hold each other up in prayer. And yes, by your grace, may we struggle in prayer in these dark days. 
Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being so patient with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.